Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the AI Tech Sales Podcast. Uh, today, I have two incredible revenue leaders. Um, I'm glad to have Tammy Aguillon, uh, VP of Commercial Sales at DocuSign, and Arwa Kadura, uh, Chief Revenue Officer in Flux Data. Tammy, Arwa, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's great to have both of you here. Um, Tammy, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit about your career, how you ended up in sales, uh, what gets you going every day? Sure. Um, hi, everyone. I, I oversee a new business sales team at DocuSign. I've been in SaaS sales for about the last 15 to 16 years or so, started as an SDR, um, did not know nor plan for this to be my career. And it sort of happened somewhat happenstance when I became an SDR. Um, I, you know, as far as like what gets me going every day, I, I love the role of being a GTM leader. There's never a dull moment. There is constantly new challenges every single day. There's always something new and exciting and challenging to work on and sometimes frustrating, but that's exactly, you know, what gets me going. Amazing. Arwa. Yeah, I started on the opposite side of the spectrum. I started in accounting and finance, um, you know, 23 years ago. I ended up having a good run at accounting and finance actually for probably longer than I thought, almost about 12 plus years. What I noticed though was, hey, I like what these revenue people are doing. And it seemed very mystical to me. There was quite the appeal of these highly charismatic people getting deals done and negotiating and you know doing things over, you know, but what again looked like a glamorous lifestyle. I was looking at their expenses. So I was like, ooh. They could take that's all this stuff. <laughs> I was sitting there trying to enforce the IRS uh, tax rules, making sure they're you know getting everything in, in place. But but I was intrigued. It looked to me sales was a black box. I didn't know. I was like, these are a bunch of magicians. How do they do it? So if, eventually, I actually moved when I was at Moody's. I moved into revenue operations um, and then sales operations. You know, I sort of owned a little bit of accounting and then a little bit of the sales ops. And they said, no, 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 sales ops is going to be in sales and, you know, accounting revenue operations is going to be in accounting. So, so choose which path you'd like to go. And that was when I, for the first time ever, I actually reported it to sales leadership. Um, and yeah, it was, it kind of opened up my eyes to a whole other set of challenges. Exactly what Tammy says. It's super challenging. Never run out of challenges. And the thing I'm almost most proud of is the fact that I see it as my personal responsibility that every AE, every SDR, every SE on my team, I'm accountable to them and their success is sort of my success. So that honestly is probably the single biggest driving factor is how do I help these people succeed? Because that is hard. And I watch them and I know how hard their jobs are. And it's almost like my own personal challenge to say, how do I ensure enough of these folks are successful? Because look, as revenue leaders, when half of your team is failing, not meeting quota, that's on you. That's not on them. You can't hire that many bad people. Right. Oh, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Oh, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on you know your path, somewhat unconventional, right? So you were never a frontline seller. How has that impacted, you think, your leadership style, the way you interact with you know company leadership, the way you interact with managers, with reps? Yeah. You know, I just have such a great empathy for the job that they have at hand. Mm -hmm. While I personally am a high accountability person, right? So I do hold them to a pretty high standard. Um, I understand that, again, my job is to remove roadblocks out of their way. And that if I don't do my job right, I can actually create a lot of friction for them. Like I used to implement CRMs and ERPs for a living. And I just saw how awful it is when, in what I would tell sales leaders or anybody not directly sort of in a quota bearing role, I'd be like, please follow, try to follow the, your own process that you are trying to implement. 
before you try to put it on an AE. Because more often than not, everyone on the outside that's helping sales is honestly, they're just adding more. Now, some things are valid, right? But often the revenue organizations, the front lines, everyone just kind of dumps on you and everyone thinks that they can do your job better than you. And it's really, really frustrating. So as a sales rep, your job ends up becoming filtering all the noise, figuring out the couple small nuggets that you need to be successful, and then creating a recipe for your own success. Tammy, I would love to get your thoughts too on, on, on your style of sales leadership, particularly given that you've you know, you started as an SDR, you've seen every, every level, every rung of the sales uh, leadership hierarchy, if you will. Yeah, I, I can um, I can actually, and it's evolved quite a bit as you as you mentioned. You know, being an SDR to begin with, then being an AE, then being a frontline leader, and so on and so on. And then similar to Arwo, you know, I've also worked at smaller companies, and then also very very large companies as well, uh, even larger than DocuSign. And um, you know, I think in the beginning, my sales leadership style was to basically mimic what I saw others doing or what I thought. I should be doing, right? And so I think in the beginning, when I was um, a frontline leader for the very first time, you sort of feel a little bit like you're riding a bike downhill. You don't really kind of get, what is it that I need to get control of? Um, holy cow, there's all of a sudden all these people that report to me and I'm no longer in charge of my own destiny. It relies on you know the path of everybody else on my team. Um, I have to be this hard charging, uh, you know, chest thumping, sort of like table pounding persona that we all kind of imagine from like the nineties. And I think that's, it felt very uncomfortable because it wasn't me, you know, and I think these days we talk a lot about authenticity, but back then that wasn't part of a part of the conversation. So I had this idea of what I thought I should act like, but again, those first few months were very rough because it wasn't who I was. It also just wasn't kind of like, um, you know, part of what I wanted to be my leadership style, nor my brand. And it didn't feel sustainable in the long run. It also, I'm sure I'm, I, you know, if I were to reach out to those first AEs that I manage now, I'm sure was very unpleasant for them as well. Um, so it's, it's been a journey and I can, I think I can say, you know, now at this point, I think similar to Arwa, right. It is, um, it is about the people on your team. It is about sort of like, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about actually this year is, you know, it's not about going a mile wide. In fact, I don't want to do that. Right. So as far as enablement priorities, um, actual, you know, pipeline priorities, we're going to go inch, inch wide and mile deep, and we're not going to do all the things. We're just not. We're going to do very few things, and we're going to do them very, very well. And those have been selected, curated, not on by me, but by me and consensus from my broader leadership team based on feedback that they've gotten from their AE. So I think you know my leadership style, if you will, is is one that is like, what is going to be the right thing? You kind of um, bring up all of the feedback and what folks are asking for. And then as a leadership team, it's your job to kind of like sift through and figure out what are the things that are gonna be most impactful, also based on relationships and things that you're working on with business partners as well, and what's gonna be best for the business. So um, that's, you know, I think where currently things have, you know, where I've evolved to in the last couple of years. And it, it, that you'll find over time that if you evolve to what your team needs versus what you think they need or what you're purporting the team to need, the mm. rest will follow. It will naturally follow. Mm. Fascinating. Were there a couple of moments in your career which gave you the confidence to develop that more authentic leadership style? It takes a little bit of time. It takes confidence. Um, it also just takes someone else showing you the way. Right. And, and someone modeling it. Someone right? modeling it. Yeah. Because I, I agree with Tammy. You, you know, for me, sort of early on looking at the you know, call them stereotypical sales leaders with a little bit of, you know, sort of gray, you know, in their hair and having that natural confidence and charisma, but very type A, very like, 
you know, they, they can assert themselves. In Very uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, perhaps. Yeah, and even the softer version of that, right? Which was yep. very corporate, very sort of, you know, we, we can almost put a visual behind what that leadership profile looked like. Um, so long as that's what we thought the role was, it was almost like, how do I behave that way? And how do I project that confidence, right? Not my confidence, which maybe is rooted in something different. And it was, it was a style of how you speak, a style of how, you know, like even when you're quiet, it's a purposeful quiet. Like there was just a lot of little subtle things that I was looking for to try to pick up along the way. And then to Tammy's point, I think for me, it didn't, I didn't throw it all out honestly until I came back into tech. I, I did think tech kind of democratized sales profiles a little bit more. I was in financial services before at Moody's. Um, not, you know, Moody's was a highly progressive company, very in favor of trying to promote and elevate women. But but still, we we still, you know, we were selling to bankers and most bankers are men. And so there, there was just an inherent, you know, sort of stereotype in the system that you couldn't avoid. Um, and then I think, you know, Tammy and I, had the good fortune of meeting uh, at the same startup. Um, and I did all of a sudden feel like, oh, this isn't the typical sales team, highly technical team. Um, and it started to feel like, yes, that did start to become the mold in Silicon Valley, SaaS, developer-oriented technologies. And then kind of, you know, it just continued to spread to, to other go-to-markets. Yeah, it's and I think in, in showing the way it's like at many layers, right? It's one day to day, like when Arwen and I were working together day to day, but also you're seeing people in your field and in your profession at other companies that you identify with or their leadership style you identify with. And, you know, this isn't necessarily about like, you know, a gender or any sort of thing, but it, it is about, again, approach and seeing that, you know, perhaps even somebody who wasn't that specific type A personality could still do very well, succeed and be really well respected and be advanced and promoted, you know, regardless of whatever their, you know, physical profile was. So I think that that for me was really important. It There was, you know, of course, like some mentors and sponsors along the way to sort of help foster that, but you had to see it widespread across the profession in order for it to, to, to you know, unfold within yourself. Totally agree. Every one of these conversations is such a great reminder of how important role models are. Um, yeah. It's how we all learn as human beings, right? You can hear, you can read the theoretical, whatever, things are equal or whatever it is, and then you see it happening or what the extent you see it happening, and then you can actually believe it and internalize it. Um, and and the, the role that we then play in having that responsibility, right? Knowing that we have achieved a certain level of success sort of in our careers, I think puts the burden now on us to... You know, and I've talked to both of you about this. Like, I personally feel a responsibility to get more women into tech sales. Like, I just feel that burden mm -hmm. um, almost selfishly, though, because, you know, I've hired some amazing women over the years. And I just I'm like, there is no reason that we don't have more women in this profession other than we've created a stereotype of this profession collectively, you know, that uh, maybe correctly dissuade some women from entering. And for a while, it used to be the travel burden on this profession, right? If you were in sales, you were expected to travel. Um, what most job descriptions, Tammy used to say 50 to 75% of the time, right? That was in every job description that you applied to. Again, think uh, I have two kids, Tammy has two kids. I don't know that we could have done that and done it successfully and felt like we were in control of our families as well as our professional lives, right? That would have been too hard of a burden to, to kind of pass. And then there were other things, right? Which is, I just, I didn't know any women in sales that were highly successful. And even the women that I knew that were in tech sales, when I would ask, how did you get into it? Almost always it was, oh, my dad was in tech sales and almost, you know, extended. So, so they had a path, right? They, they had someone um, 
or, you know, for, for some women, I think it was just, I don't know, like, I don't know, Tammy, how, why you decided to become an SDR. I would have never, ever in my wildest dreams thought when I was graduating college, that that was a respectable profession to just go straight into sales. Like, I just thought that, you know, if you're smart, and again, this is, to, you know, very stereotypical, but we just thought that, like, if you have a certain GPA and a certain level of math comprehension or sciences comprehension, there were other fields you ought to consider first. There wasn't a lot of championing of sales careers. And I don't I don't know if that's changed, but I, I'm, I think there's been a lot more extensibility for young people to go, oh, this is another path into success, especially into technology. But, but Tammy, I'd be curious, how did you even decide to go into sales? Uh, like I said, very happenstance. I um, was in marketing actually when I started first out of college and did that actually for quite, that some, sounds time. More traditional. <laughs> for quite some time. I, you know, probably longer than I would care to admit. So I was actually a very um, mature, let's say SDR when I became an SDR. Um, but it was one of those things where I, you know, for whatever reason at the time, you know, decided, I don't know if I want to do this thing for a long term. Now, in hindsight, when I look back to those marketing days, it was because I didn't have enough instant gratification. And I, I don't think I had the emotional maturity back then to understand that's what was going on. <laughs> yeah. But now as I think forward to sales, I'm like, everything is instant. You know, if you won or if you lost, like, and I don't just mean deals, but like with everything, you you get instant feedback. Um, back then, a long story short, I sort of just pulled different friends. I had friends that were in tech sales. I had friends that were pharmaceutical sales reps. I had friends that were um, in legal discovery sales. So I kind of just like randomly pulled a bunch of my college classmates. And what are you guys doing? How do you like it? And they seem to like it. Same as you are. Well, it wasn't something I ever thought was in the cards for me. Um, so I answered an ad on Craigslist. Wow. Come an SDR. Oh, I love it. For a startup. Uh, that's literally how it happened. I literally applied on Craigslist, got, you know, a couple interviews and then started in San Francisco at a startup. And then the rest is history. And then to your point though, Arwa, becoming an SDR opened up the world to me because it made me realize probably what you mentioned, like there was this mystical thing that was happening on the other side of all these leads and calls and opportunities I was opening, there's an AE that's taking them and doing something with them and doing very well with them. Right. And so I, that was kind of like my first exposure and thinking like, I think I could do that. I want to try it. Um, and that's how it happened. Fascinating. Fascinating. I want to double click on some of the things both of you have mentioned around the evolution of sales, right? Particularly in tech sales over the last couple of decades, lots more work to do. Um, but I want to bring in AI into the mix now. How do you think, uh, how do you think AI is going to affect this progression of the democratization of the AI, the sales profession, particularly in tech sales um, over the next decade, let's say. Yeah, part, part of my hope with every sort of new technology paradigm is that we continue to democratize everything, right? So, right. you know, like I saw the pandemic as a huge opportunity for women uh, or minorities or people that didn't want to travel, you know, like anyone who was gated by sales because of travel, I was like, look, perfect time, get into sales, right? Like this is your opportunity. It's going to be done over Zoom. And I don't think we'll ever go back. Right. And so introduce AI now. And I'm like, okay, how do we use AI? And, you know, I'm a revenue leader. I'm sure a lot of your listeners right now are thinking about how do I use AI to create a competitive advantage, right? And that's twofold. There's a lot of work we can automate, right? And for me, I want you to automate non-satisfactory work, anything that doesn't create like sort of, that doesn't require human creativity and or allows us to use our um, sort of analytical or like requires a little bit of judgment, I think we're going to automate, right? So if you think about the SDR job, I think you can create a 10X SDR, right? So maybe we used to have to hire 
you know, one SDR for every three AEs or come up with whatever ratio you want or a certain volume of leads or a certain volume of revenue or a certain volume of pipeline creation. Well, what if you can have now one SDR that can, you know, if, if we plug in all of the right algorithms that say this type of lead class automatically nurture, automatically send this type of email to, automatically research, automatically append all these fields, et cetera, et cetera, right? Then I can have that SDR really focused on high value activities. And so the question becomes, you know, will we need as many SDRs in the future? I don't know, but I can tell you within even the next year, their jobs are going to be very different. And we're going to have to figure out how to make them uh, more productive in ways that we hadn't been challenged to think about in the past. But I think there's also the possibility that you can also lean very tech savvy, meaning the people that might survive are going to be the people who are highly technically curious know how to power these tools and stitch them together. Because I think I, I don't see in the next few years that this stuff is going to all be so seamless and so easy that any average Joe can just plug and play. I, I do see that there's going to be an advantage for the folks that know how to almost architect sales and marketing tools and create an advantage that give them that 10x power. And I don't know whether that democratizes or whether we create a bunch of technocrats. Very interesting. So your, not fear is probably a strong word, but your perhaps apprehension is that in the future, the best salespeople, the best people in, in the revenue organizations are ones that are familiar with using um, the best you know AI tools out there. Yeah, I, I think they'll be the ones who may, if you have some kind of advantage for how to leverage technology to make you a 10x salesperson, 10x SDR, 10x sales manager, you might have a huge advantage over your colleagues. So I think some of the software skills, you know, that we've talked about in the past, like, I wonder if that'll be a, a big enough of an advantage to allow you to succeed. That that to me is the big question. I'd love to hear maybe what Tammy thinks about the AI advantage or how AI even changes that conversation. Do you, do you still see that? Look, you can take someone who has all these great soft skills and just uses a little AI, you know, magic on top to to make their job better. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I have a particularly strong POV on this yet. I do share some similar sort of like maybe if and sort of um, points of view on it. Like so, for instance, you know, one thing that I I mean, first of all, I agree with you on the 10x thing. Like I think for the non-automated stuff that should be automated, that we all would like to be automated anyways that's going to go, I think, very, very quickly in the direction of AI. When you come, when you think about some of like the higher order things, like are what maybe some of the things that like sales execs think about, um, you know, looking and gleaning dashboards. And I don't just mean like the output dashboard, but all the input dashboards, right? Just like um, AE performance with all of the different metrics that we might track. It can be, you know, and then also maybe if you even look at historical quarters and what's happened in historical quarters and what sort of insights you can glean from those historical years and quarters that you can actually pull in and find those opportunities. Right now, you're kind of, we're kind of relying on RevOps sales ops to find those insights and gems, unless you are combing through those things all of the time. Right. You know, interesting insight, like 60% um, of the big deals, whatever you classify as big deals that we closed in Q1 came from this specific campaign or had these trends within their gong or chorus recordings, right? Those are the sorts of things that they're like little needle in the haystacks that I'm hoping AI can help us surface. Um, I also think like, I do, you know, strongly believe that if there are sales leaders, sales managers that are sort of like dashboard leaders and that's all they know how to do, yeah. you know, that's, that's something that's definitely going to have to evolve. Yeah, totally agree. I think the pattern matching is so much more powerful with AI and that can be a powerful enabler because to your point, 
there's a hundred reasons for why you close a deal, right? And you never really know as a revenue leader, like we we all do our best, but I guarantee you half of us are like, I think, <laughs> right. And, or, then you, and then you launch new initiatives based on what you think. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like we have, I, I grew up in sort of sales ops and sales analytics. So I, I always feel highly um, empowered by data, but, but I also know that you could also improperly interpret data because just because you have a correlation does not mean you have causation, right? So yes, these things could have come out of a certain campaign, but that may have not still caused that specific thing. And it does take a tremendous ability to, you know, synthesize a ton of information and data and truly be a subject matter expert. I think deciphering AE performance is probably one of the hardest things that we have as sort of sales leaders, right? Because my big question is always, is this a good person doing all the right things, but is unserved by that territory, sort of whatever? Um, or is this person truly not doing what they need to help themselves be successful, right? And so deciphering between those things. And I think if we have AI powering some of that discovery, because part of what we always think that sales has that other roles in the company don't have is that, hey, it's merit-based, right? You, measurable. Yeah, super so measurable. But what's measurable is the output. But to Tammy's point, the inputs are sometimes very, very gray. But deciphering all those little characteristics that help lead to your success can, can be incredibly difficult. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's fascinating. I I, uh, I have a bit of a perspective on what you were talking about, Arwa, in terms of the balance between softer skills and just being familiar with AI, right? Um, this is my perspective. Uh, I could be completely wrong about this, but I think it comes down to buyer choices and buyer comfort. I think buyers will fundamentally not be comfortable spending like $50,000 with an AI. Now, of course, that does mean that there are moments in the customer journey that may be more and more driven by AI, right? But I think the ultimate purchase will still have to be driven by a human. I mean, I think just fundamentally human beings can't buy, can't spend $50,000 know, before speaking to someone who guides them through what, what the value is for them, et cetera. That being said, I think what it's going to transform, how sales is going to transform is there's going to be more of a weight on some of those softer skills. Um, and I think more of the, the role is going to be focused on building those customer relationships and honing those softer skills, because a lot of the grunt work, to your point, is done by AI and automation. So if you have, if you have sophisticated organizations that help reps implement the automation necessary, then that frees them up basically to focus on what sales is traditionally supposed to be building those relationships, understanding the value prop, the use cases and all that. I think that's a great, that's a great point. And one thing actually I was thinking about too, as you were, as you were mentioning that is like, you know, there might even be, we might even start to see a little bit of a difference between say PLG sales and, you know, complex enterprise sales. To your point, a customer of a fortune 500 company is not going to want to buy through an AI, but someone who's wants to, does not want to interact with a salesperson at all, mm -hmm. I believe will buy through, you know, PLG led motion. Um, so I, you know, things like, and, you know, to Arwa's point earlier about focusing on higher value activities, that's going to apply at all levels of, of the sales of the GTM team. So if you're an enterprise seller, you should probably spend your time. Maybe you should actually start traveling again and getting on site and doing face-to-face -face meetings. Right. That, that's, that's going to get you more value than, you know, updating your CRM or, you know, reading through your transcript notes and what have you. Yeah. And I think Rohan, my point wasn't that we would have an AI doing enterprise sales, but the people who ultimately succeed in enterprise sales will be yep. very confident and competent right. in the AI tooling that they have at their disposal. Meaning these are the 10X AEs 
and they know how to send, you know, really compelling content really, they know how to shortcut the research process such that they can glean the right insights about their prospect, the signals, the buying signals, the, you know, competitive differentiation. And depending on how we're able to disperse this, you know, education to the masses, that to me is what becomes the differentiator, right? And so I think in the past, we've had other things that differentiated salespeople because for the most part, the sales processes were highly manual and dependent on data entry. Right. I think we're going to flip that a little bit and it's going to be less data entry and more your ability to architect a series of tools that can help you do the grunt work of your job far right. more effectively, allow you to glean insights which then means that the face time that you spend with customers is of true high quality. Hmm. Very, very interesting perspective. I have, I have one thought there though, which is, I don't think you need to be very technically, you don't have to have a very solid technical background to actually use these solutions. I think curiosity is perhaps the number one thing you need for some of these solutions. If I think about the explosion in large language models in particular, chat GPT and the rest, the beauty of it is that you can type in the English language and get detailed results, summaries, code, whatever you want. And that's something that is completely almost flipped the accessibility of, of some of these solutions. I would agree with you, Rohan, on a one-to-one -one tool. But the minute you're using 15 of these tools together mm. to create a super sales tool, I think it changes. I, I think you're right. But when you take your inbox, you take your CRM, you take your um, you know outreach kind of mark, whatever um, outreach tool, some kind of web crawling tool, to create an email, to send it to a certain database, to action based on certain criteria. I don't think it's actually that simple, but but I mean, who knows? I, I just feel like I have a couple of people on my team that know how to do this stuff really, really well. And you start to see that there is now starting to be this competency differentiator from the people that can exploit, right? And maybe it's early days. So maybe right now there's an early adopter advantage and maybe it gets all democratized away when these tools all start to work together in much more seamless ways that are far more sort of user obvious, but, but I think, I don't, I I'm seeing it firsthand today that I have a couple of people on my team that know how to use this stuff quite intelligently. Do you think that's something you'll hire for both of you, Tammy or Orwell? In, in percent, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, because I think it's, you know what it is, Ron, is it speaks to the depth of what you mentioned, which is curiosity, because if this person, it's not so much their proficiency in it, it's their willingness to try and to learn. Because that usually will indicate it's an indicator of other things that they're willing to try and to learn and be coached. Yeah, it's it brings up a whole different set of topics around the capabilities you hire for. Right? A couple of sales leaders I've talked to have have basically spoken about how domain expertise may be less relevant and curiosity, which means you know that's more accessible to younger sellers, etc. That becomes so much more important because if you're if you compare five years ago, if you compared you know forty year old seller with domain expertise. Uh, but who wasn't that willing to adopt, you know, new technology, et cetera, versus a 25-year-old new seller, the 40-year-old will probably win every time. Today, it's not that clear. It depends on what you're selling. It depends on a bunch of other factors. And particularly if you have that curiosity, you can bridge that gap on that domain expertise within the, you know, the first year or so. Um, and so it becomes, because of AI, curiosity becomes a lot more important of a skill to hire. I, yeah. I want to touch on one more. Sorry, go for it. No, no, I was going to say, I, I'm a huge believer that sort of someone's curiosity and someone's uh, sort of growth mindset, yeah. uh, discipline, right? Like that will outcompete any domain expertise any given day. Totally agree. Um, information has been democratized to your point. So domain expertise is no longer a walled garden that could be monetized as much. Love that phrase, walled garden. Um, 
Yeah. And I've, I've hired some exceptional young talent that you would basically say had zero domain expertise and just their curiosity, their discipline, their hard work really paved the way. It's the conditioning, it's your diet, it's your ability to, to kind of like bring in the right level of coaching. Um, you know, just making sure that there is that openness to like every day you want to improve every day you want to sort of get better. And that is the best predictor of success in my mind in, in most sales environment. I find that it can be easily, the domain expertise can be easily taught. What I cannot teach is intellectual curiosity and a uh, commitment to sort of, you know, be, be disciplined and do all the hard things that, uh, is required in sales day in and day out. Truer words were never said. That's that's fantastic. Oh, well. Tell me, last thoughts from you. Um, what advice would you have for a 22-year-old just getting into sales today? First of all, do it if you're thinking about it, but for whatever reason, have preconceived notions about what it should be or what it should be like, throw those away and dive in. But also, to Arwa's point, be prepared to put in the discipline and the work ethic and bring that growth mindset. Sales is nothing but a roller coaster of ups and downs throughout your career. So you're going to have to learn that early on. Um, so bring in kind of like, you know, a steady mindset and be ready to normalize all of the highs and lows, but most of all, um, bring a hard work ethic. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Arwa and Tammy. It was a pleasure having you both on the podcast. It was great. Thanks, sure. Sure.